Hi there and welcome to another Oslo podcast. My name's Todd Fraser and in this podcast series we interview leading clinicians, characters and troublemakers who are changing the face of clinical healthcare. On today's podcast I'll be chatting to Daniel Cadini, who's a clinical support officer and intensive care paramedic for Ambulance Victoria and he joins me to discuss the paramedic antibiotic in severe sepsis or PASS study. Welcome Daniel. Thank you for having me Todd, great pleasure to be here. Um, look, how big a problem is sepsis, and in particularly in the context of pre-hospital care? Uh, well, what, what we do now, and part of the reason that has, has led to this work, that certainly when reviewing a lot of the evidence, not only in the Australian context, but probably on an international context, in a pre-hospital setting, sepsis um, seems to, to go largely unrecognised. And, and certainly as far as pre-hospital clinicians go, their ability to determine um, sepsis and assess it is is, is variable, and uh, and we know that you know over the last probably five to ten years, there's been a, a fairly significant amount of work done in the sepsis space um, to improve the recognition of it, and then uh, the subsequent pre-hospital management, and and which is really great because for a long time the the sort of awareness and the spotlight of, of pre-hospital sepsis management and particularly paramedic management had gone uh, long forgotten. Um, so certainly uh, a lot of the work that's done through the UK Sepsis Trust has really put that on the radar and um, advanced, I guess, the recognition and, and further assessment, assessment, particularly with the, the use of pre-hospital assessment screening tools and some of the pilot work they've done around um, early antibiotic administration and blood culture collection. So um, for us, it's fairly significant. In, the, in Australian context, I guess uh, it's it's just as significant. The, the mortality rate associated with sepsis um, is probably a little bit less than, than uh, some other countries and obviously Australia being a modern developed Western healthcare system, our, our mortality rate sits around 20% but as we all probably know that can be very much higher in other sort of underdeveloped countries. So the idea of introducing in-hospital management to the pre-hospital environment um, and delivering these therapies earlier that appear to be associated with impact on mortality is um, a bit of work that we were always really keen to do. So fortunately, we've, we've gotten to that point now, which is, which is great. What are the reasons that we miss sepsis pre-hospital? Is it, and do we know anything about the groups that we miss? Are they the more severe patients, the more mild end of the scale, or are there certain groups that we do tend to miss? Yeah, it's a good question. There, I think traditionally from a paramedicine point of view and, and when we think about the education and, and the awareness and the understanding of sepsis, and as you probably aware, Todd, as well with your background, it was largely related to the presentation of SERS criteria. And certainly we know over the last probably five to ten years with a lot of work that's done, um, you know, Merton Singer and the sepsis 3 criteria and, and a few other um, quite significant pieces of work that, that SERS tends to lack in a bit of um, sensitivity when identifying sepsis. So I think that, um, you know, as paramedics, we see patients who present with SERS every day. Um, however, uh, as we know, the likelihood of those patients going on to actually develop sepsis is, is not uh, as common as we think. And, and for that, probably perspective, we've missed quite a few. Um, and, and now probably as far as the development and sort of new criteria, which includes organ dysfunction, so things around mentation, um, cardiovascular state, respiratory state, uh, they, they seem to be more sort of sensitive. And, and I think as paramedics, 
or ambulance services adopt those pre-hospital criteria or screening tools based on good sort of evidence-based um, research, we hopefully will be able to uh, to pick those, a lot more of those patients up and get the early sort of care that they need and then also the, the pre-hospital notification they need to activate the, the in-hospital sepsis care pathways. So as you mentioned there, um, the previous diagnosis of sepsis largely revolved around the presence of two or more SERS criteria and a suspicion or confirmed diagnosis of infection. How has that definition now changed and what relevance do the changes have to, to paramedics, do you think? Uh, yeah, well, I mean, for us, I, I think I can um, talk to a little bit of work that we've recently done here in Ambulance Victoria in Melbourne. And, um, and, and like I sort of mentioned, we're, we're seeing a lot of the, the sepsis criteria, even in an in-hospital context, context now, also include uh, criteria of organ dysfunction. So, um, say, for instance, uh, you know, just... Uh, or conversation, say for blood pressure less than 100 is something that you see getting quite featured. And then also altered mentation is something as far as organ dysfunction is, is included. And, and so we were fortunate to do a bit of work um, that we published in Emergency Medical Journal of Australasia this year where we had a really, um, for the first time, had a good look at our pre-hospital sepsis patients that were enrolled into the ARISE trial, which was a large multi-centred randomised trial that looked at early goal-directed therapy and, and essentially... Um, uh, showed very different outcomes to that of the early rivers study back in, I think it was 2001. And so for us, we were able to look at those patients and, and get a better look at how they presented it pre-hospitally, what their characteristics were, and then actually looked at their mortality. And, and one of the interesting things to come out of that, if you were one of the 241 patients who were enrolled into the ARISE trial at the Alfred Hospital of 340 patients, and you presented to the paramedics with a history suggestive of infection and a Glasgow coma score less than 15, and and a blood pressure less than 100, it was actually found that you had a 21% mortality. So um, certainly including those criteria and more contemporary pre-hospital sepsis criteria seems to have some um, evidence base to it. And it's probably not dissimilar to some of the other um, uh, sepsis bundles or and research related to that, that that has been founded recently as well. So it's, um, it's, it's an interesting time. We're talking about the past study today, which you're involved with and is ongoing, as I understand it, which largely is around the early administration of antibiotics in severe sepsis. What do we know about timing of antibiotics in sepsis and what its impact on mortality is? Yeah, it's a really good question. And, and I think that whole concept of time-to-first antibiotic dose and its impact on mortality um, it really kicked off by um, a seminal paper by the name of a fellow by the name of Vanan Kumar in 2006, who undertook quite a large observational study and found essentially that for every hour in delay from onset of hypotension, there was a 7.6% increase in mortality. Now, you know, given yes, it's it's not an RCT and it is an observational study, that that really set the tone, I think, worldwide um, for this. I guess, concept of trying to reduce that time to antibiotic dose. And there's been a lot of studies since um, that has showed that there's been an, a linear relationship with an increase in mortality and delayed antibiotic administration. So I think that the evidence is definitely well-founded. 
Um, and and certainly with sepsis being one of those really time-sensitive conditions, um, it would just seem logical to try and bring that treatment forward into the pre-hospital environment and deliver that antibiotics um, early. And, and one point I just want to make about that, Todd, what's really interesting is that if we think about paramedicine and pre-hospital care services, we're heavily geared towards the management of these really um, well-known time-sensitive conditions like acute myocardial infarction and stroke and and major trauma um, and major trauma. Sorry, um, and uh, uh, the, the the advancements in that have been huge over the last thirty years. So you know, and some examples of that is now that you know paramedics are performing twelve-lead ECG at point of care. They're doing pre-hospital thrombolysis. Um, here in Melbourne, um, we've recently had the commencement of a, a CT scanner and a stroke truck to to um, assess patients and provide care to them. And same again for trauma systems. And interestingly, uh, you know, sepsis has the high, highest mortality out of any of those three conditions. And if you've had an episode of sepsis in your life, you're five times more likely to die than you would have AMI, stroke or myocardial infarction. So um, this concept of now shining the spotlight on sepsis and seeing if there is any mortality or morbidity benefit from giving early antibiotics and taking blood cultures in the community, I think it's a, it's a big glowing question that's still yet to be answered. Now, there has been some work in this area in recent years, hasn't there, with a recent meta-analysis looking at um, the impact of early antibiotics or pre-hospital antibiotics and also the FANTASY trial. What can you tell us about those? Yeah, the, the, absolutely. The, um, the FANTASY trial is a really interesting one, I think. Um, and, and certainly when it came for us to um, create our methodology around the past trial, it was extremely useful. So as you sort of alluded to, so the FANTASY trial was published in The Lancet in, in 2017. And it is actually the first that I'm aware of. Um, pre-hospital trial of its kind that have actually enrolled patients with their defined sepsis criteria to either get blood cultures and antibiotics versus standard therapy. Now, there was a number of really interesting things about that. Um, and, and before I guess talk to that, their outcome was quite interesting. So they actually found that there was no difference. So there was an 8% mortality in the intervention group versus an 8% mortality in the, um, in the standard therapy group. So that in itself is kind of a very interesting outcome. But I always think there's devil in the detail, particularly with these things. So a couple of things that I think has received a little bit of scrutiny from the, re- the international or the national research community is firstly their enrolment criteria. So they enrolled all their patients based on SERS criteria and like we sort of just discussed we know that a large percentage of patients that we see that have SERS criteria don't always go on to develop sepsis. Um, The second thing is is that uh, 10% of the patients enrolled in the study actually had blood pressures less than 100. So this sort of raises a question in context of current contemporary criteria you know has that actually captured the organ dysfunction that we now believe is associated or as part of the definition of sepsis? Um, and that, I mean, there was there was many other things about the trial. There was a lot of um, a lot of patients were enrolled from GP clinics, so you would think that um, is not entirely the probably cohort you'd want to capture. And also, um, there was there, I mean. I'm probably it's probably open to interpretation, but if you look at the randomization numbers in each of the groups, so certainly in the intervention group, there was approximately 1,500 patients um, versus the standard therapy group where there was approximately 1,100 patients. Now, it was a non-blinded study, so I'll let you draw your own conclusion on that, but there, there does seem to be quite a significant imbalance 
in the randomization favoring those who got actual antibiotics. So for us, these are big things and, and, and uh, we, we really allowed us to sort of guide what our methodology was going to be um, and results. So certainly our methodology is very similar, but um, in terms of enrolment criteria, very different, yes. So the past study is a phase two trial that's looking at pre-hospital administration of antibiotics. What can you tell us about that trial? Yeah, so um, a phase two uh, feasibility study. So it's actually a pilot study um, with the intent of going on to undertake a phase three trial, which is, as many would be aware, a larger mortality and morbidity study. So certainly for us in the pilot study, one of the there's a number of sort of um, things we primarily wanted to look at, and, and part of that being the ability to be able to take pre-hospital blood culture using aseptic technique and also contaminant rates. Um, but our sort of primary hypothesis was to see if we could actually look at this at impacting and reducing that time to pre-hospital uh, antibiotic dose. And, and we kind of, and we, and we postulated in the actual protocol that we think we can impact and reduce that time by 60 minutes. And part of the reason being is based around that piece of work that I spoke about that we, re, we recently published in the Emergency Medicine Journal of Australasia. Uh, once again, those, those 240 patients that were enrolled in the RISE trial that we saw that were diagnosed with sepsis, their median time to first antibiotic dose from loading the patient in the ambulance to getting their first dose in hospital was 107 minutes. So that's quite a huge time frame. And we think through the past pilot where we should be able to reduce that and look at that. And, and obviously um, that's part of the reason we're doing it. Um, the, other, the other thing too, we aim to enroll about 110 patients over about a 12 to 18 month period. Um, and and I guess look at all those things as as to you know whether paramedics can identify using new criteria, um, uh, whether they can take blood culture contaminant rate and obviously randomise and give broad spectrum, and then obviously um, we'll hopefully look at the mortality and morbidity when we've got the stronger number or the larger sample size to to look at that. As you mentioned, this is a feasibility trial, so some of the things you'll be looking at are whether you can impact on the the antibiotic um, delivery time, but also things like uh, the ability to take point-of-care lactate and perform blood culture sampling in the field. Can Just for the audience who are listening who might not be familiar with um, either of those things, what does that involve and is there an impact on scene time and those sorts of things? Yeah, that's a, actually, that's a really good question because obviously being a pre-hospital care service, scene time is, um, is always a focus of operational performance. So certainly... Um, in order to take a blood culture, I mean, in the past trial, we've we've taken or adopted the ICU standard. So, so we use sterile gloves. So there's actually a procedure that you, you you need to do, and it's a bit tricky in order to put on sterile gloves if you're not familiar with it. And we also need to create an aseptic field using a dressing pack. And we're also going for the gold standard of um, taking two blood culture sets because obviously that increases the sensitivity of determining the pathogen. So doing all this at the bedside or in the pre-hospital environment or in someone's patient's home, it's, it's not going to be easy. It's certainly going to come with its, um, its difficulties. Um, and, and, and I guess we kind of expect that. But if we can sort of aim high and do the best we can and then monitor and see potentially what some of the issues relating to that would be, um, that's part of the reason we're doing it. And, you know, interestingly, there was a pilot study that happened in the UK, I think about 18 months to two years ago, where 
paramedics actually took pre-hospital blood cultures and they actually found that the contaminant rates with pre-hospital blood cultures were slightly lower than those um, collected in the ED by um, staff within that hospital. So I think that, you know, with the right training um, and, you know, we're very fortunate to have a highly professional and competent paramedic workforce in Ambulance Victoria, I think we can hopefully address that. Um, the other thing too is we're using iStat devices to take point-of-care blood lactate, which is interesting. Um, and for those that are familiar with iStat devices, particularly in a re- retrieval um, context, they can be quite cumbersome. They're, they're a bit um, uh, temperamental when it comes to storage. And, um, and, and for us, we're still sort of grappling as to how we're going to use these for this trial at the moment. Um, but the value of blood lactate and setting of sepsis, uh, I think, has is, is been established for a while now. And um, certainly it's, it's, a heavy, it's heavily included in a number of sepsis bundles and, and, and pathways. So uh, uh, it's also something for us to, to look at its worth in the pre-hospital setting, which, is, which would be a good opportunity to do so. How does the um, the lactate get used in the context of the trial? Will it be used to determine um, management or is it for inclusion purposes or is there a, a part of an interest value sort of preparation for the future trials, as it were? Yeah, no, definitely that. I think it's the last. So, um, so we're certainly, it's not in the actual trial per se. So the paramedics to enrol the patient don't need to take a blood lactate. But what we, what we have done is, um, is we're going to be including the blood lactate as a part of their assessment for enrolment and doing a little sub analysis around it. I think we're just quite interesting, interested to see how it looks and, and I guess, what the impact of it as a bio, as a biomarker, pre-hospital biomarker and sepsis. And certainly we know that anything greater than two, um, which is in accordance with a lot of the current recommendations is, is significant. Um, and, and certainly, you know, the, it also has implications for other sort of more not so common cohorts, but those that may present with cryptic sepsis. So those patients that have SIRS criteria and are normotensive but have blood lactates greater than two. So how do we, you know, potentially identify those people in a pre-hospital um, area? I mean, treatment-wise, uh, I guess that'd probably require another study to see if there's any benefit of um, treating those patients. But, um, but yeah, it's certainly an interesting area for us to, to look at, um, which is, once again, a good opportunity to do so. Now, you chose to use uh, keftriaxone as the antibiotic of choice. What was the rationale for doing so? And uh, do you anticipate that that will potentially expose patients to, to resistance generation? Yeah, it's a very good question. Um, certainly, in an extreme context, we know that keftriaxone is in the top three most used and prescribed antibiotics. Um, so there's, there's definitely always uh, an issue with antibiotic resistance. But, but I guess from a an acute care and emergency type presentation, um, sepsis is definitely one of those. And obviously, paramedics currently administer uh, well most in most services. Certainly in Victoria, we administer keftriaxone for meningococcal septicemia. So there's some familiarity with that already amongst the paramedics. Um, from a condition-based point of view, or source-based point of view, we know that the sort of top four 
Um, common sources that trigger infection are usually respiratory, genitourinary, skin, and gastrointestinal. But the top two are really respiratory and genitourinary that we see in a pre-hospital circumstance. And and ceftriaxone actually is, is not a bad um, antibiotic for coverage in those two um, in those two sources. It's not so great for skin and abdominal. It's not, it's not ideal, um, but. For the purposes of this condition, sepsis, and certainly um, the investigator approach was that we um, that ceftriaxone is more than um, appropriate, and you know we've we've gone with the standard dose of, of two milligrams. Now, interestingly, um, that that issue around antibiotic resistance or the effect of of ceftriaxone is probably covered off in our exclusion criteria for the past pilot. So, if you present with you know any of these conditions such as cystic fibrosis or have had recent solid organ transplant or you're a, you're a cancer patient receiving active therapy we know that ceftriaxone probably isn't the most appropriate um, antibiotic for those patients that, and they potentially may be resistant to that so for those reasons they're actually being excluded so they won't receive um, ceftriaxone. And as we said, the, this is looking forwards, I guess, as a preparatory uh, study towards a bigger study into the future. What do you anticipate that study might look like? Yeah, so th- so the plan at this stage, um, we're hoping to, we, we're looking to probably submit a, a, a grant for obviously a, a large amount of money. You can't really do these large randomised controlled trials without a degree of funding to, to get them running. And we're hoping to do that based on some of this pilot data that we have halfway through next year. And and this might potentially be optimistic, but we would like to possibly start the larger mortality and morbidity study in maybe year 2020 or... Um, no, sorry, what am I saying? Year 2021, which would be our... our, our, our ideal start date and we probably in order for it to be adequately powered we'd be looking at enrolling anywhere between 800 to 1200 patients and so at this stage we have um, three pilot sites um, with the feasibility trial um, the, the larger mortality and morbidity trial would probably involve the whole metropolitan area of Melbourne um, and then a number of rural areas throughout Victoria in Australia um, so uh, it'll be just focused to Victoria, so it won't be a, a multi-centred um, pre-hospital trial at this stage. Daniel Cudini, thanks very much for joining us on the podcast today. Uh, hopefully we'll have you back uh, in a year or so to talk about the results of the trial, and uh, we look forward to seeing how it all goes. Good luck. Absolutely. Thanks, Todd. Thanks for having me, and uh, I definitely look forward to chatting. As you can tell, I'm quite passionate about it. <laughs> well done. Thanks very much for joining us. No worries. Thanks for joining us on the podcast today. For more fascinating interviews just like this, visit our website at osla.force.com.